Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I want to talk about collaboration. Now, I happen to believe that collaboration is one of the current buzzwords. You're seeing it in articles all over everywhere. And I'm finding a lot of companies are starting to instill it as a core value, emblazoning it on their walls and in their corporate documents. And it's showing up in talent selection. So leaders are being judged about their ability to, quote unquote, collaborate. However, we talk about collaboration if it's simple, and I don't think it is. Now, we say to collaborate that you have to have a common goal, or you have to be willing to work for the greater good. However, far too often, I find that what is the greater good from my point of view can be dramatically different from the greater good from your point of view. So how are we supposed to collaborate then? If we want to have better collaboration, and I think we need it, then we need to understand what it really involves and develop the skills and methods to make it a reality. So my guest today comes from having worked in some of the world's most conflict-ridden places with people who are fundamentally enemies. Now, he has corporate experience, but we're going to talk particularly about his work in other places. And you're going to hear some amazing stories about how he and his partners have gotten those groups to collaborate. And I think you're going to find that the same insights and approaches that they talk about in that work applies equally to your work today. So my guest is Adam Kahane. Adam is a director of Rio's Partner, an international social enterprise that helps people move forward together on the most important and intractable issues. Adam's written a bunch of books. The one I'm most fascinated with today is called Collaborating with the Enemy, How to Work with People You Don't Agree With or Like or Trust. What a great starting point. He's also written a bunch of other books, one in particular, Solving Tough Problems, an open way to talking, listening, and creating new realities, and many more. Now, Adam has a lovely background history. So during the early 1990s, Adam was head of social, political, economic, and technological scenarios at Royal Dutch Shell in London. He's also held strategy and research positions with Pacific Gas and Electric Company in San Francisco, with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris with the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Vienna, with the Institute for Energy Economics in Tokyo, as well as positions at the universities of Oxford, Toronto, British Columbia, California, and the Western Cape. I certainly believe we can say without a doubt he's been in some interesting places around the world. Adam, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Wanda. All right, collaborating with the enemy. I can't wait to get started on this one. I know you've worked some in the corporate world, but you now spend your time in different places. Tell us a little bit about the work you do and why did you start doing this work? Um, well, uh, I had, I guess, a background a lot of corporate people have. I uh, was taught to figure out uh, what the right answer was, and then somebody would implement it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was doing at Shell. Um, and uh, during the time I was at Shell in the early 90s, um, we were asked to provide some methodological advice to some 
politicians in South Africa that were working on the transition from apartheid to democracy, and I got involved in that and discovered there's a whole other way to make a difference in the world, which is not necessarily by coming up with the smart answers yourself, but by helping the people involved on the ground uh, work together to figure things out for themselves. And, and that's what I started doing then, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since for the last, whatever, 28 years. You've been in some interesting places. Just give us a sampling of two or three of the more fascinating ones in recent times. Well, all of the work I've done and all of the work my colleagues and I do now has the same basic uh, form. Uh, it's with groups of leaders, people from business, from government, from, from church groups, from civil society, from community, um, who need to work together but um, who don't know how to do so. And uh, I've done that all over the world, starting in South Africa, a lot in Colombia during the <clears throat> during the uh, civil war, uh, in in Thailand, uh, in Canada, and the U.S. on on issues from from water to child welfare to education to health care. So places where people need to work together, uh, but they really don't agree with each other and not sure they like or trust each other, and so it's not straightforward how to do so. I can only imagine what that work looks like. It must be gratifying, but it must be also quite intense work at the same time. So let's start with a case. In this particular case, I like to talk about Mexico. So tell me about what the problem was, who was present, what you were trying to work on. Uh, Yeah, well, uh, we've been working in Mexico for the last four years with a wonderful group of uh, Mexican leaders uh, from the corporate sector and and the activist sector and, and other parts of Mexican society working on, I guess you could say, the whole mess, um, inequality, insecurity, illegality. And uh, okay. <clears throat> that's brought together people from army generals to people from the president's office to human rights activists, CEOs, uh, archbishops, uh, academics, and others, Um, all people who really care about what's happening, are concerned about what's happening, want to try to make a difference in what's happening, but but see things differently. I think it would be fair to say that what people, what most of these people uh, what most people everywhere would really like is if other people would just do things the way, way they want to be done, implement the solution they think needs to be implemented. But, of course, when you get 30 of these people in a room, um, uh, they find that, first of all, uh, they don't agree at all. And secondly, they can't tell other people what to do. It's not like a corporation, well, I may not agree, but the boss says i got to do it, so I do it. Maybe, but <clears throat> sorry. What's it like to work on problems where um, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to do what I think makes sense, uh, regardless of what you say? And so that's what we've been doing um, on those general issues for the last four years, and then for the last year specifically on questions related to education, which 
in Mexico, like in lots of other places, is really uh, one of the core issues to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would argue that in corporate life, there's this illusion that the boss can tell you what to do. But as most bosses know, it doesn't go very well when you try it. You might get away with it in a crisis, but it doesn't last for long. And especially when the job market is strong, people have a tendency to just up and leave. So it's interesting, but I also can imagine that these are very thorny problems. It's not like we can go out and get some data on what the right answer is for fixing the education system. There's a lot of mess in that one. So how do you go about doing this work? Yeah, so I think the point you you made at the beginning of your of your question is really important. I think a lot of us uh, have this illusion that we can control things, but uh, whether you've been a boss in a corporation or a parent or a spouse, uh, uh, that that is an illusion. Um, and yes, especially with people who have other choices. So for me, the the more general issue that we've been exploring in this work in Mexico and elsewhere is how do you get things done when you're not in control and where different people see things differently? So the, the, I think there's a couple of things about how to go about it. The first is to recognize that um, all these different people uh, have a piece, of the, a piece of the understanding of what's going on. And if you don't understand what's going on, you're not going to be able to figure out what to do about it. And so in the education work, uh, the, the people from the, the Department of Education and the teachers and the principals and the students and the academics and the parents and the community leaders uh, all see a different part of what's going on. And so the first step is how can we look at this situation through, through these different eyes? And I wouldn't say see everything, but at least see more of what's going on and recognize that, yes, I have my ideas about what's going on and what should be done about it, but but um, we can be smarter if we can think together. And, okay. and to recognize, as you said in your introduction, there's no such thing as the greater good. There's There's all kinds of goods involved. They're all real. The good of the students, the good of the teachers who have families to support the good of the communities, and sometimes these align and sometimes they don't. So to recognize all of these different perspectives and all of these different goods need to be taken into account, and if it seems like it's complicated or complex, it's because it is. But the, the second part of it is to recognize that we're not going to be able to figure out just sitting in a meeting what's going to work. We could sit in a meeting for, for months and and think we figured it out all, all out and that we'd agreed it all. But actually, we wouldn't know whether what we thought would work would work. So I think even a more, more of a stretch is to realize that the only way we're going to be able to figure out what works in these complex situations is to try it and see and get feedback and try something else and discover our way forward. It's just not possible with complex situations to know before you start what's going to work. So this willingness to experiment and fail and fail early 
uh, fail forward and learn learn our way into a solution. That's that's uh, in a way the the hardest part of all, especially for those of us who are who are used to thinking that that uh, that we're smart enough to fig- figure it all out and then just other people have to do what we figured out. I see that so much in corporate life, particularly for people who've been the expert leader, who do know what to do and how to do it better than anybody else, and especially those who are quite deep strategic thinkers. They believe that their value add is to go out there and think deeply about the problem, maybe consult with a whole bunch of other people. Yes, of course, not by yourself necessarily, but come back and announce the answer, and it just doesn't work. And this ability to understand that how you thought about it might not be the way forward or the only way forward, even the best way forward, it might not work. And then admit that it failed and figure out what to do about it. Ooh, that is, boy, does that take courage, is the best I can say. So, yeah, let's go back. Well, um, I, I, I'm certainly like that. I, you know, I was brought up and trained to, <clears throat> to be the one with the smart answer. And you know sometimes I can get it right, but but uh, but it's one thing to have it right in theory. It's another to have something that'll work in practice. So I think this discipline of I'm going to try something, I'm going to put it out there, my idea, my action, uh, and I'm going to put it out there with confidence, but also with openness to uh, what's the feedback I'm going to get, and how can I adjust and try again and adjust. And just keep doing that. And it's that willingness to be wrong and to fail and to pick yourself up again and to say, okay, well, let's try this. That's, uh, that's, that's what's required. So in Mexico, you've got a group of 30 people sitting in a room. You come up with an idea about a way to do something that will make a difference in the education system. You go out and you test the idea. You probably have to say to various stakeholders that are funding this effort or supporting this effort or making their political campaign on this effort, some that are not involved in the process who believe, great, this is it. You go out and experiment and it doesn't work. Now you have to deal with their frustration and disappointment. How how do you navigate that one? Well, it's a tough one, um, but... Um, I think the starting point, uh, which most people will recognize if you ask them gently enough is, well, how's it working so far? Uh, you know, how, uh, how have our grand plans and our, our knowing and our top down reforms worked up to now? So it's not as though the choice is between making a mistake and keeping doing the perfect thing we're doing. The reason we're doing this is because the thing we thought was perfect isn't working or isn't working well enough. So it's a false choice to say, oh, oh no, no, I couldn't go along with trying something new because what's work, what we have now is not working. And whether that's true of the education system in certain respects in Mexico or healthcare. um uh, in the U.S. or 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 energy and climate change in Canada, I could give a hundred other examples. It's not as though what we have now is working, or at least working well enough. So, so that's a false a false choice. Um, I think the the opportunity invited by this approach of experimenting our way forward is 
let's try to figure out what's wrong with our plan early when it's small and we haven't spent much time or money on it and it's just an idea rather than going full steam ahead, um, re-engineering everything, uh, building 100,000 new schools, retraining a million teachers, and finding out that, no, this didn't work. So th- this idea that comes from the design world of fail early, fail forward, uh, this is really important. And I think a lot of the new muscle that we're trying to develop in the team, and I would say in the Rio's team as well, is the willingness to put something half put something out there that's half baked, shitty first draft we call it, being willing to do that, even the perfectionist that we are, and get feedback early and change it, rather than being stubborn and saying, No, 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 I know the answer, just let me do it and then failing big time when it's much worse. Mm-hmm. And this this approach is known uh, by by practical creative business people, um, but uh, it's often ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks great when we're in the innovation lab. It might look great when you're in a startup. It doesn't necessarily work when you're in a corporation and there's something at stake to lose. But I get your point. I, th- I think you're right. That willingness to put out an idea and be willing to receive it. Um, that receive the feedback back from it and then to adjust and to adapt and not wait until the idea is kind of like fully fleshed and then it's you're too wedded to it. I want to go back yeah, to where you... I, I sorry, I had a colleague who used to say, if you're really sure pounding your fist on the table, just put in my opinion at the beginning of the sentence. <laughs> now, if that doesn't work, put in my humble opinion. And it's just that little bit of those few words that remind you that, yes, I think this is true. I'd like you to take me seriously. But it's just my opinion, and I'm open to hearing other points of view or other evidence or other perspectives. I love that. So pound your fist, but before you say you do that, you got to say, in my opinion or in my humble opinion. I think that's fabulous. Yeah. That would work. That would work. All right. I want to go back for a minute to the first point you said, that you have all these different people who all have a piece of the understanding. And I love the way you said there's no such thing as a greater good. They're all different kinds of good. I think that was a fabulous statement. How do you get people? So everybody's sitting in the room. Everybody seems to think that they've got um, a part of the answer. How do you actually get them to talk and listen to each other? Well, a very important principle of our work uh, that I often say is the phrase, the phrase, how do you get them to is never applicable. I, I can't get anybody to do anything. I certainly can't get uh, I, a, a Mexican um, education leaders to do anything. I can't. I can't get my own kids to do anything. I can't get my employees to do anything. So the the idea that you can get people to do things, this control orientation, that's a phrase that people use all the time. But it's just it's not uh, generally applicable. But what I can do is is help people who who are already frustrated or 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 searching for a better way or hoping for a better way or in doubt about whether they're doing what they're doing will work to to try out listening to other people and to seeing if if together we can we can go uh, we can do better than, than I can alone so it's it's as simple as um, 
as creating the opportunity for people to to listen and talk about things they care about, in this case, what's going on in education and what should we do about it, um, and have them discover that, oh, gosh, that was... That went on a little long, and it was a little little tense. But actually, you know, I I understand things better than I did uh, an hour ago. And and maybe this person who I really thought was misguided and and maybe even dangerous, actually, uh, they have something to add to this. And maybe maybe we should sit together at dinner and see see what else what else we can figure out. And then it starts to become fun that these people who I thought were my opponents or maybe even my enemies, that they're not. I might not agree with them, uh, but actually we can do stuff together. And uh, the world's not as scary uh, as I thought it was. So it's it can be the most rewarding thing in the world to find that, wow, these, these other people actually have something to contribute. Uh, this is wonderful. We don't have to be at war. We don't have to... I don't have to destroy you to get where I want to go. Wow, that's a powerful statement. I, we could use that in many places in the world, not just in corporate life. I don't have to destroy you to get where I want to go. All right. I can imagine that there's a lot of skill in facilitating that opening session where people actually start to talk and talk to listen because you know, sitting down the first time, you can imagine there are people who are not so sure how much they want to say. Is there anything special that you do that makes that invitation more valuable, uh, viable for people? Well, um, yes, uh, a couple of things. I mean, we've been doing this now cool. uh, six days a week for 25 years, so we figured out a few things that work. Yeah. But, um, I think... Uh, to focus on, to focus first of all on, let's try to understand what's going on before we try to decide what to do about it. Okay. So, um, uh, this is an interesting way to start. Uh, sometimes in workshops we ask people to bring with them an object that for them represents the current reality, the current reality of education in Mexico, the current reality of uh, our, our product pipeline, the current reality of um, uh, education in our, uh, or uh, safety in our community, whatever it is, and to have people each say uh, how they see things and to say it with an object rather than a, a slide presentation or a flip chart, uh, you start to see, wow, this is... This is pretty interesting, and there's more than one way to look at that. So that's one interesting way to start with how do we see the current reality. Um, okay. Another, if you talk about the very first minute, um, we often, uh, in a big group, will ask everybody to introduce themselves in a minute, exactly a minute, uh, and to say why they're there. And uh, particularly in a group with a lot of hierarchy, uh, Older people, more powerful people, wealthier people, uh, bosses, uh, the idea that everybody has the same amount of time and uh, and that there isn't one person who's going to give a one-hour speech with everybody else listening or pretending to listen, um, these are all things that 
that start to create some horizontality and some informality and some curiosity. Oh, wow, that person's here, and, and that's why they're here. That's interesting. So uh, my colleague Ian Prinsloo often says that that formality and hierarchy are the, are the great enemies of collaborative work. And so I think anything you can do to break down the formality and the hierarchy and to allow people to express this is how I see things, this is what I think we ought to do uh, in a constructive and, and, and structured way, um, then you can start to get somewhere and not rely just on what the boss thinks. Right. Which might be right, but might not be right. Might not be right as well. That makes a ton of sense to me. I know that there are several people that we've interviewed on this show in the past talking about collaboration and things like a collaborative operating system and the notion that you need some rules by which you're going to operate in order to be effective as a work group inside an organization, for example. And one of the things that gets in the way is this hierarchical sense, particularly hierarchical around who decides the answer. Who decides what we're going to do? And they find that once they get a group really, truly functioning in a collaborative way, the group has to jettison the hierarchy and adopt other ways, for example, of making the decision. Um, one of the ones that we heard about in the collaborative operating system is this notion that we just, it's a rotating thing. You know, you're deciding today. Tomorrow, somebody else decides. But that sense of getting rid of the hierarchy, I think you're exactly right. And I love this notion that you get rid of the formality. I think relationships are at their best when there's an informal connection, there's informal time. I think that's true in teams. I think that's true across groups. I think it's true across diversity. I think it's true for bosses and subordinates. And we don't give enough attention to the hygiene of our informal time with each other. So I love that you say formality and hierarchy are the enemies of collaborative work. Well, and that's not to say there's no place for hierarchy. Green. Um, and that, that on a, give, a given subject, um, somebody doesn't have to decide. Not everything needs to be decided by everybody together. Yep. Um, but it might be different people who have to decide on different things. And it might be, yes, I am going to take the decision uh, in an hour, but I really would like us to think together about what the options are. So there, I'm not saying that hierarchy has no role. It's just right. what's, what I think is very interesting about these multi-organization, multi-sector teams, which is where Rio's people spend spend all our time, that's the work we do, is it forces us to learn how to work in teams where nobody's the boss of anybody and that people are there because they want it. And they don't have to come to the next meeting if they don't want to. So that's that's a higher bar. How do you work with people who are genuinely volunteers? And I think what you said about companies is uh, actually in many cases, uh, in a good job market with skilled professionals who have other choices, people are either there because they want to be or, or they're not there. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, how, how do we work on, yeah, how do we work together? And I really agree with the point you made in your opening remarks that the problem with collaboration as a buzzword is it makes it sound like it's easy. It's not at all. 
I think many of us, certainly, I would much prefer for things to just be done my way. But So collaboration is harder than unilateralism. But what if it can't be done my way? What if other people aren't going to do what I want? What if my idea is wrong? Well, then then we have no choice but to collaborate. And that's what we're trying to figure out. But don't say it's easy, because then when people discover it's hard, they'll give up and go back to command and control, and that's no good. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. In the absence of progress, we'll go back to doing it my way, and we get a dictatorship on that one. Okay, Adam, we're going to take a break at this point of view. Uh, what a fascinating discussion from my point of view. I'm incredibly intrigued with this whole idea of collaboration, particularly when you think about getting people in the room who are enemies, who don't trust each other, and actually fundamentally don't have to be there if they don't want to be. And I just want to give a couple quotes back that I really like from what you said. One is that there's no such thing as a greater good. They're all different kinds of goods. And that it's possible that I don't actually have a full understanding or even a good way forward. And I can't know whether we've got a good way forward at the start. So this willingness to experiment, to fail, to fail early, to fail fast, as we know from design work. Many, many wonderful things. And my third quote on this one that I love is that um, formality and hierarchy are the enemies of collaborative work. With me today is Adam Kahane. Adam is with Rio's Partners. And the book that we have been talking about that I highly recommend is called Collaborating with the Enemy, How to Work with People You Don't Agree With or Like or Trust. When we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about what's happened in Mexico, and then we're going to go on to some of the more difficult challenges like difficult people. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Adam Kahane. Adam is Director of Rios Partners. Adam's written a ton of books and done some amazing things, but the book I'm highlighting today is Collaborating with the Enemy, How to Work with People You Don't Agree With or Like or Trust. Now, just in case you're tuning in at the last minute, Adam's company works with in all places in the world where there's a massive big problems and many people with many different perspectives on what the solution might be or could do. And as we've said all along, some of those people really don't like each other, don't trust each other. And in cases have been enemies, I mean, arch enemies um, on the opposite sides of the fence uh, in dramatic ways, like willing to kill each other. And there's this whole sense that you can come together and start to understand that you have a piece of understanding about the real problem. And until you understand the problem, you're actually not going to be able to know what to do about it. And so opening up that willingness to hear from other people, their understanding of the problem, learn something, get excited about it, see some new alternatives. And the second element is this willingness to admit that you can't know sitting in a meeting what's actually going to work that you have to be willing to put out a half-baked idea, go out and test it, get some feedback, fail fast, fail early, and fail forward. And that takes enormous courage. Um, Incredible process. Now, Adam, one of the things that you're fond of saying is that you don't have to agree with people in order to work with them. Explain how this works, and why do you say that? Well, I'm, I emphasize this point because it really wasn't obvious to me at all. Um, the way most of us uh, were brought up to think about problem solving is we have to agree on what the problem is, we have to agree on what the solution is, we have to agree on the plan to implement the solution, then we have to implement the plan. And yeah, it would be nice maybe if we could do that, but I think it's not at all, uh, not at all realistic and not at all necessary. Um, we okay. talked uh, about this idea that, well, we, we can't know what's going to work before we try it. But but the, the other point, this, this one you mentioned, is 
we don't have to agree uh, on everything to be able to take the next step. And I learned this uh, uh, from working for many years in Colombia with uh, former President uh, Juan Manuel Santos, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016. And uh, he said to me once that, uh, Adam, what I learned from this work we did together, uh, referring to work on the peace process with with uh, left-wing guerrillas, right-wing paramilitaries, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, he said, what I learned from that work is it is possible to work with people you do not agree with and will never agree with. And I thought this was really fascinating because often the idea in collaboration is, well, if we get together and talk, we'll find it was all just a misunderstanding and actually we do agree. But that's not true. Often often we get together, we, we talk, we, we may enjoy being with each other, but we realize we don't agree and we'll never agree. And the idea that Yes, we may disagree about many things or most things, even on very big things, but there is something we can agree on or at least that we can do together or maybe you'll do this and I'll do this and we'll see what happens. So this idea that we have to come to consensus before we can do anything is completely incorrect and that's exciting because it's a big relief. If we really had to agree before we could do anything, in, in most places we wouldn't do anything. And this has been interesting to me to watch this outstanding group uh, in Mexico. It's been working in it for four years. When I look at them now, they're, they're very happily and, uh, and merrily uh, and creatively uh, working on things related to education and crime and inequality and security, really important work. But I'm not sure they agree with each other any more than they did four years ago. They have very different ways of looking at things, but they're able to do stuff together and get stuff done. And that's a very important example, because what's the alternative? The alternative is uh, the one with the most power just imposes it on everybody else. And um, that's not how I want things to be. And so... I'm excited by having seen, seen with my own eyes, that actually it's possible to work together even among people who don't agree with or like or trust each other. That's very encouraging for democracy and for creativity and for finding solutions to the big challenges we have. We'd certainly say for some of the challenges democracy is facing in various places in the world at the moment, it's a darn good thing that we don't have to agree because I'm not sure we're ever going to get there. It's an easy thing to say, Adam, that we don't have to agree and we never will agree, but we can still get stuff done. And I want to come back for why this strikes me. You know, you say in the beginning that part of the, the way of working with this one is to come to the understanding that I have a piece of understanding and that I can never understand the full picture and therefore know what's going to work without getting other pieces from other people. But my presumption in hearing you say that was therefore we come to a common understanding of the totality. But that's not what you're saying. You're saying we don't have to agree in order to figure out that we can do things that move forward. Well, um, Yes, but I want to just go back half a step. Okay. Even, even if I did understand it all and knew the right answer, that doesn't mean I could get it done. 
Uh-huh. So yes. So there's 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 several reasons for needing to work with others. First of all, to understand what's going on, and to secondly, to be able to act on that understanding. And mm-hmm. so, yes. Yeah. So that's an important um, addition. But I, I think the fallacy is uh, a friend of mine, the late Don Michael, pointed out to me that this this metaphor of the blind man and the elephant, where everybody's got a piece of the elephant, mm-hmm. uh, and together they see the whole elephant. This is not really. Correct. There isn't an elephant. There isn't one fixed thing that we could know all about. It, it, uh, we've got uh, different things at different times, and we can only understand a bit of it, and it keeps changing. So, so this I, I think this idea that, well, if we put all our understandings together and really worked it out and got the data, we could, we could understand it and then know what would work. It's not that simple. But beyond that, it's not necessary. You know, I, uh, I may disagree with you about uh, the relative importance of climate change as a political issue um, uh, and whether it's number one or number five and uh, how much, uh, you know, attention it deserves and, and at the same time be able to agree with you that, uh, yes, it would be a good idea to have cars that use less gasoline. You may want them to use less gasoline because it reduces carbon emissions. I may want them to use less gasoline because I'm, a, uh, I, I'm worried about the environmental impacts of, 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 of fracking or, or the security impacts of, of, uh, of oil from the Middle East. In other words, we can agree on stuff to do, even if we don't agree on everything about the situation or about why to do it. Uh, A politician uh, uh, in Latin America once said to me that, look, the strongest political agreements are ones that different people support for different reasons. We don't all have to have the same reason for agreeing to something. So it's this Cartesian, this logical idea that we have to agree on the problem. We have to agree on the solution. We have to agree on the plan, one step at a time. It's it's, it's we don't have to, and if we did have to, we'd never get it done. And in that sense, in that sense, I'm a, in general a big fan of politicians. Unfashionable thing these days, but politicians understand that you have to you have to figure out what will work in the situation. You have to make a deal. You have to make a compromise. You have to have things that different people support for different reasons because there isn't one hole that everybody agrees with. It's just not that simple. I, 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 um, I admire that kind of way to find compromises and find, find paths forward, even when not everything is agreed because everything will never be agreed. Okay. Strikes me that that's incredibly relevant for corporations, especially in large, complex corporations with so many different competing parts, so many different agendas, such limited resources, that this notion that there is not one whole, and it's figuring out what will work that we can kind of agree on as a next step and that we can compromise on. I I love this notion that we can support it for very different reasons and take action on something for a host of reasons. I think that's fascinating. 
Yeah, this this phrase that people use a lot in corporations and elsewhere. Let's just think of the good of the whole. Yeah, it's not a. It's a phrase that makes no sense, and it's manipulative. There isn't one whole. There's the company and my department and my job and and my family, and these are all holes, and real life is we're trying to navigate between them. When people say, let's think of the good of the whole, what they really mean is, let's think of the good of the whole that matters for me. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's not sensible, and it's manipulative. Um, so, yeah, what are the holes involved here, and what's a sensible way forward? Uh, I can imp- I can try to force you to pay attention to the whole that I care about, my department or, or my business unit. You know, maybe I can get you to go along with that, but, but, but you're quite rightfully worried about your job and your department and your family and your health. There's lots of holes involved here, and we just have to figure out a way forward. That's great. Well, you've just had this jettison two um, hallmarks of making progress. One is this notion that we agree the problem, agree the solution, agree the plan, and then we all implement it as if there's no problem whatsoever. And the two is this notion that there is a sense of a greater good, one greater good, one whole greater whole, and we just have to say it, and then we'll all be good. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, you've written about difficult people, Adam. One of my favorite of your articles is about how to deal with difficult people. And you have a very strong opinion about difficult people. Tell us about that one because it strikes me, you know, here I am dealing with people I don't agree with and don't trust and don't really like and never will agree with. Why shouldn't I just label them as difficult? Yeah. So, um, of course, there's lots of situations that are not as extreme as I don't agree with them. I don't like them. I don't trust them. And they're difficult. But I find I find it useful to think about these I learn a lot from these tough situations, and and the point I make in this article in Strategy and Business is that uh, often, uh, at least it happens often to me, and I don't think I'm the only one, uh, we're working with somebody, and we just conclude they're really difficult, and uh, yeah, um, sometimes we can ignore people or go around them or step over them. Uh, but what if we have to work with them? Or what if we want to work with them? And uh, sometimes it's about them, but sometimes it's about us. Why is it that, that those sort of people always, why is it that I always get irritated with people like that or people who do this and is it that there's something wrong with them, or is there some pattern that I'm that I'm uh, that I'm falling into? In other words, and I let me put it in a, in, a, in another way. Um, the make in making in trying to get things done and in trying to change things. When people say, for the situation to change, people have to change what they're doing. What they almost always mean is other people have to change what they're doing. Those yeah. other people, those people, those difficult people, those enemies, those opponents, whatever. It's the other people. And if you understand, and this is what we talked about at the beginning of the program, if you understand that your capacity to get other people to change is 
small or zero, then thinking about what other people ought to be doing is really not very useful. I, I realized some time ago that I, I, I could spend several hours every day thinking about what other people ought to do. Uh, what uh, what uh, my colleagues ought to do, what my damn clients ought to do, what my kids ought to do, what uh, Mr. Trump ought to do, and it's really a complete waste of time. Um, at a certain point, sooner rather than later, you have to say, okay, yeah, that may all be true, but what am I going to do next? So that's the fundamental point, including about so-called difficult people. Is, yeah, I may find them difficult, but that's not that's not a helpful place to stop. The, the, the important question, the only important question is, what am I going to do next? That's all that matters. And that's the fundamental point about, about all of this. And presumably tell them off or give them feedback about why they're difficult isn't one of those important things that I need to be considering doing next. No, it may be. I mean, it may be that the thing I need to do is to tell them that what they're doing is irritating to me. That may, it may help, it may not. But, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that your actions can't include trying to convince other people. Uh, but if, if the only thing you can think of doing is trying to change other people, you're going to run out of rope pretty quickly. <laughs> A more productive question is, yeah, okay, this is the situation. These are the people involved. They might change a little bit. Probably not. What am I going to do differently that would get me where I want to go? That's a practical question. I love that. I love that too. And it's the it's that what do I do differently to get where I want to go? It's that focus on the what are we, what's the end game, I guess, in some ways. Not that the end game is always visible, but that what's that action? How do we make this a better place? Yeah, I'm, I think all of my ideas about this are, are pragmatic ideas. Uh, not about the way things ought to be in the world, but about the way they are, or at least as I understand them. And um, we might wish that there could be, everybody would agree with us, and we might wish that we could figure things out before we started, and we might wish that we could get other people to do things. But wishing doesn't make it so. And uh, so for me, a more pragmatic or realistic stance is, how do I deal with a world where, in fact, there's different points of view. In fact, there's many holes. And in fact, I don't have much influence on what other people do. So if, if that's true or mostly true, what do I do next? That's, that's what I care about. I love that. There are many, the fact is that there are many different points of view. There are many holes. And I don't have a lot of influence over what other people do. Certainly don't have any control over it at all. Okay. Um, you know, one of the phrases that we often say is about suspending judgment, particularly in this dealing with people who have different points of view or different perspectives, different um, understanding of the whole, as you've described it, that I need to suspend my judgment about them and do something else. Now, I find that's a whole lot easier said than done, but what's your take on it? Is that something that is a good thing to try to do? Is it not make any difference? Or do we go back to just the pragmatic? What am I going to do next? I think it's, uh, I think it's one of the most useful things to do, and I would just um, make one comment on the way you asked the question. It's not about different understandings of the whole. It's about understanding of different holes, usually. Yes. Um, or 
Yeah. Uh, but yes, um, uh, I find this notion of suspending judgment or su suspending our opinion to be extremely valuable and, and simple and practical. It's this image that I have this idea about things, about what's going on or about what should be done or about what you should do, whatever. And I suspend my idea as if on a string in front of me. And when I suspend it, it first of all, I'm saying, this is my idea. It's not the truth. It's not me. You can, you can question the idea. You can contradict it. You can attack it without attacking me. And, uh, yes, at the end of our conversation, I may say, you know, thanks for that, but I still think exactly what I think. But maybe having suspended it, I'll say, you know, uh, it's not the way I thought it was. And uh, I guess I look at this a little bit differently or a lot differently. So this, this and this, uh, the act of suspending is like the, the quip I gave earlier, just saying in my opinion or in my humble opinion is an act of suspending. I'm saying, yes, this is my opinion. I do have my opinion. I'm not going to pretend I don't. But it's my opinion, and I'm, I'm, I'd like to hear other perspectives on it. Now, suspending, does, suspending my judgment doesn't mean abandoning my judgment. I may need to make a decision in five minutes or in an hour or in a day. I may need to exercise my judgment, but I'm going to suspend it for a little while to try to see what's, what's going on here. I had a mentor, the late Bill O'Brien, who was... Uh, trying to give me some gentle training about interviewing interviewing job candidates for our company. He said, Adam, it's true. You do have to make a judgment. That's the point of a job interview. In the end, you will have to decide do we hire this person or not. But you don't have to make a judgment after every sentence they say. <laughs> like, I agree with this. I disagree with this. I like them. I don't like them. That's really not helpful. So his advice was to spend your judgment for an hour. Listen. Then, yes, you'll make a judgment. But um, but uh, but approach it with a little a little more fluidity. I love that image of taking the idea, my thought, my idea, and putting it on a string and dangling it out in front, and that makes it not me. Therefore, we could talk about it. You gave me feedback on it. You could actually disagree with it. You could even attack it. But it's not about me, and I can. Uh, in effect, pause it out there for a moment. And I love this notion. I'm, I still have to decide. I may not change my mind at all, but that's what I'm going to do with it. Adam, we are sadly out of time. I have this feeling we could keep talking for forever. And we haven't even come back to say what actually happened in Mexico. You'll have to stay tuned to read the book for that one. My guest today is Adam Kahane. The book is Collaborating with the Enemy. Highly, highly recommend. Adam, there have been so many parts of this one that are so um, thoughtful for me. I think the one I really, really want to stick with is this notion that there are many holes. There is not a single understanding of the whole. There is not a common good. There are many common goods in many holes. I think that's the one that I'm going to take away from today. Adam, thanks for being a guest. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in How to Get Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh,